Okay, so Romans part 27. Um, we're going to try to cover 9.30 down to 10 something. <laughs> See how far we go. Um, but just by way of review, we're going to kind of go back over the previous section just so it sets up for what we're going to understand. And remember, God... God has elected you, right? God has elected those whom he called he elected. And so Paul asks questions. He made a very clear, poignant uh, point that God elects those whom he wants to elect, right? And we talked about Jacob and Esau. We talked about um, um, Isaac and um, Ishmael. And so he has mercy on whom he has mercy, he show, and he makes vessels for honorable things and vessels for dishonorable things. And so the, the question arises, or will it would arise from a human perspective, is God unjust for choosing whom he wants to choose, right? And we talked about that he has the right, right? Does the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? No, he doesn't have the right. And so then the next question is, well, why does God find fault then? Because how, how can you resist his will, right? So that's verse 19 of chapter 9. How can you resist his will? And it's the same kind of, it's the, it's the response of the potter in a pot. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He makes vessel for honorable or dishonorable use. That's verse 20 and 21. And he's in fact been long-suffering and merciful. God has, right, to, to those who have rejected him and will reject him. And he makes those fit for salvation, those who are fit for salvation, he makes known the riches of his glory to them and the blessings to them, right? That's verse 23. But not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's vessels of honorable and mercy found among the Gentiles. And we, as non-Jews, are vessels of mercy and honorable use because he's using us for his glory, right? Uh, Paul talks about God is just because he chooses the remnant. He always, there's always a remnant. It's always been a remnant that God uses to manifest himself to, to bring forth understanding about himself to. Remember the prophets and the priests and the writers of the Old Testament were generally rejected by the people of Israel, right? They, they would murder some of them. They would chastise, persecute them. And so, but they were the remnant of God's chosen to communicate a, a message, right? All of the apostles that the church is built upon, all except one, died terribly, right? John, the Apostle John, was the one that was just you know, exiled in, on an island in Patmos, but all the others died a, a persecuted death, right, and martyrs' death. So the remnant will be saved, that's verse 27 of chapter 9, um, and the rejection on, he's answering the question about Israel, right, like, why did they, why did they reject their Messiah, and the rejection was not on a part of God's plan failing. The rejection was God's plan that they would fail, right? It was his, his word is being fulfilled. His word is true. It isn't that he was surprised or that he didn't know or that he didn't, you know, was crossing his fingers of how they would accept their Messiah. No, he planned that. 
and he caused that in a way. But he hasn't forgotten the nation because they rejected the Messiah because there's always a remnant, right? The remnant is always how God works through mankind. Jewish and Gentile believers are remnants in this world, right? There's over 8 billion people. There certainly are not 8, you know, 7,999,000,000 Christians, right? We're a small amount of true believers is a small amount of a remnant. So God keeps the nation of Israel alive because of the remnant. There's always going to be Jewish believers in the Messiah that is the remnant that God works through. Okay, so then we're going to get now into an explanation. Paul's going to explain the reason why they rejected the Messiah. Um, and we kind of went over it last week, but we're going to start that section over, the stumbling of the Jews. So it'll be nine, chapter 9, verse 30 through 33. Um, and so we, we started with this great paradox, right? Um, So 30 and 31 describe the paradox. So if someone read verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. Right, so he, we see that Paul didn't have, not Paul, Paul is describing how the Gentiles didn't have the Mosaic law, right, to attain righteousness. The Jews thought that we can attain righteousness because we have the law. You can attain righteousness by following the law, and yet they didn't get righteousness, right? So the Gentiles who didn't have the law attained righteousness. The Jews who did have the law didn't attain righteousness. So they, they by not appropriating the faith needed to please God and to live by faith, they lived it by the law. So this is the paradox. The paradox is Gentiles who didn't have the law got righteousness. Jews who did live by the law did not get righteousness. Verse 31 is the other side of that. So read verse 31, Matt. But to Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Right. So remember that the concept of Mishnaic Judaism, um, that, remember we talked about the, the Torah and the law, and then they had the Talmud, and they, they created this fence, right? So... They were so worried about breaking the law of Moses that they created this another barrier, another fence to prevent them from even breaking into the, the law of Moses. So they created all these other laws, but the laws were so far removed from the original intent that they thought, but they, they thought by living this way, we talked about how they had to separate the cheese and the meat because they didn't want the, the, you know, to violate the, the law that you would boil the goats in its mother's milk. So they didn't ever want any of that. So they would create all these layers upon layers upon layers of law so that they wouldn't violate the actual intent of the Mosaic law. They created all these other things. But they thought by doing that, they would receive or attain righteousness. So they attained righteousness by works, not by faith, right? So they never came to God on the basis of faith. They came to God on the basis of their own works, right? They didn't trust God. They trusted themselves. Um, but their own works, in the end, failed to bring them righteousness. And that we saw in Christ's time, we learned in the Gospels, that what Christ thought about the Pharisees of the time, right? They were 
they were what? They were vipers, right? And that's what John the Baptist called them, vipers. They were, they were whitewashed sepulchers, right? They, were, they would look a certain way on the outside, but on the inside they were defiled. They were liars, they were cheaters, they were thieves, they were all these things. Yet the Gentiles who did not seek to attain righteousness, they got it because they found it by faith. And so verses 32b and 33 teach us why this is true. So read 32, 30, I'm sorry, let's go to 32a. So read 32a if you would. based on works right so again the Paul answers the paradox the Jews didn't get it because they didn't approach it with faith the Gentiles got it because they did approach it by faith right so this is and 32b tells us why the Jews fail so read read 32b if you would and 33 they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written behold I'm laying in Zion the stone of stumbling all right, so we see that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who put the stumbling stone there? Who is the stumbling stone? Jesus. Christ is a stumbling stone. Who put Christ there? God, right? The way that they were trying to get, get to righteousness, to, to be with God, God put a stumbling stone in front of them, and the stumbling stone was there because they were looking at works, not faith. The only way to please God, the only way to attain righteousness was faith. So they were avoiding any faith, right? They were avoiding and they were insisting upon their works to get them to righteousness, right? But they avoided the doctrine of righteousness by faith in the Messiah. So when the Messiah comes, they're already prepped and ready to reject him, essentially, right? They, they, were, they, they couldn't even re respond correctly to him, right? When he would come and do miracles and do these teachings and do the very things that they were taught only the Messiah would do, they questioned their leaders like, who is this guy, right? They would ask the leaders, who is this guy? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the one that you've been telling us about? And then the leaders have to come together and figure out, well, what do we say? What do we do? And they finally said, well, no, he's demon possessed, right? You can only do these things because he's demon possessed. But they were taught, the nation of Israel as a whole was taught that you get righteousness by works, not by faith in the Messiah. So they were already prepped. So the Messiah was a stumbling block for them, a stumbling stone for them, because they were not thinking the way of the Lord. They were thinking the way of themselves, the way of the work, the way of the Mishnaic law. We get in that? Okay, so when you... Right, so now we can understand that when, when you are thinking works and then all of a sudden Christ comes or all the disciples come and John the Baptist comes says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's not talking about doing more works, doing greater works, doing these things. It's talking about repenting, right? Repenting is a changing of your mind of what you previously thought to this, right? And so they weren't thinking that that at all they weren't thinking that salvation is by grace alone through christ alone nothing else they were thinking that they had to get it some way right so christ becomes the stumbling block because they didn't trust him for salvation um, when they failed to trust him for salvation they stumbled right and so they had failed to attain righteousness they sought righteousness by the law but they stumbled so let's 
In, in verse 33b, Paul is quoting Isaiah 8.14. Um, and so I'll show, I'll read Isaiah 14, 8.14. It shows both the stumbling and rejection. So Isaiah 8.14 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right, so here we can, we can see a distinction between the remnant and the non-remnant Jews, right? Jesus' offer of salvation by faith only in him, apart from works, proved two things. It proved to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They were offended by Christ, were they not? They were very offended by him, right? They wanted to kill him on numerous occasions and stone him, and the, the leadership particularly, right? They, so the, Paul is saying the Jewish people stumbled over the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, and they were so offended by it. Um, Paul also quotes Isaiah 28, 16. So 20, uh, 8, 14 is about the rock of stumbling and a, and a, a stone of offense. 28.16 is about those who believe. And he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So we see two parts here, right? We see the non-remnant, those who don't believe, they reject Messiah, and he is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. But for those who do believe, he's a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be shamed. Right? And like we said, the, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Right, That's where we get all of our theology and Christian doctrine from the apostles because Christ, the chief cornerstone, taught all the apostles. There's not apostles going around today because we already have a foundation built. The scriptures are our foundation. It's built on the apostles and Christ being the chief cornerstone. Yeah? Okay, okay. So the believing remnant, just like Gentiles who are believers today, are never ashamed of the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, right? That's, that's our way. That's the only way we're in with God. The only way we receive righteousness is by faith in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, plus nothing, right? Nothing you can do, right? Um, okay, so... So we see that Paul is not saying this is a new thing, right? He's saying, Isaiah told you this many years ago, right? That Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, revealed to you, the teachers, the leaders of Israel, that there would be a stumbling stone and you would reject him because he brought about righteousness by faith, not by works. And so there, this isn't a new doctrine, right? He's saying that Isaiah, Isaiah brought forth at first and then both Peter and Paul um, actually will teach that same concept. All three point to the distinction between those who believe and those who don't believe, the remnant and the non-remnant. Good? Okay, so now we, we're going to move on to how... So Paul's asking the question, what about Israel? Why did they reject? And he's going to give some more points. And he's got, the next point is, he, they had an ignorance of the way of salvation, how salvation came about to people. Um, and so it's a buildup of the last three verses, 30 through 33 of chapter 9, um, and that they tried to get righteousness by works. 
So they were ignorant of the actual way of salvation. So read verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 10. It's the desire of Paul. Remember a few chapters ago he expressed his desire, right? That he would willingly give up his own faith and be in the lake of fire for eternity if, if it could happen that fellow Israelites could be saved, right? So here we see another desire of Paul. So read verse 1 if you would. <clears throat> Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Based on knowledge, right? So Paul is trying to unite all believers here, right? When he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, he's really trying to unite all of us and say we should have that same burden, that same heart's desire for the lost people because they are God's chosen people, that even though they rejected him, he's trying to say that we should have that same mindset that he has towards them, um, that they might be saved. So he, we see that Paul was praying without ceasing also that they might be saved, right? Um, so he wanted to see the salvation of the Jewish people, not only on a national basis, but on an individual basis as well, right? And then verse 2, is actually the key to chapter 10 um, because he's going to distinguish between legal righteousness and faith righteousness and what each one does, right? Because um, so he testifies here what they have a zeal, right? The Jewish people have a zeal for God, right? But the zeal was not according to knowledge, right? And what's the knowledge? The knowledge is salvation by faith, right? Righteousness by faith. So they had the zeal, they wanted to do good, they wanted to please God, they wanted to live right, and, but they wanted to do it in their own eyes, in their own ways, and in their own means, right? And so the, the zealousness of the Jews, well, they had a knowledge of God, but they didn't have full knowledge of God, right? Then the fullness of the knowledge of God brought to them by the Messiah, right? In Hebrews, it begins that way. God in the past has worked in various ways, but now he's working through his son to reveal knowledge, right? To reveal progression of revelation. So we, obviously we know that sincerity and zeal is not enough to give you salvation, right? Being sincere and zealous is not enough for salvation, right? If zeal alone were sufficient for salvation, they would have been saved, right? But zeal doesn't save. There are zealous people about you know, anything, climate change, there's zealous people, you know, and is that going to save them? No. They might think they're doing good, but it, you know, it's, it's not going to save them. So the Jew, Paul is saying, while Israel had a knowledge of God, they failed to understand God in Christ, right? That God is Christ. Christ is God. They failed to understand the knowledge of God in Christ. And without Christ, there's what? No salvation. There's not, right? There's no righteousness. There's no forgiveness. There's no justification. There's no sanctification. There's no glorification, right? So without that, they failed, right? They were ignorant of that. Um, so, but Hosea makes this point. So Paul does great things in the book of Romans that he always goes back to the old or the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, to say, look. You were warned, you were told these things would happen. So Hosea 4.6 says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, right? They're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. 
They're lost because of a lack of knowledge of the spiritual truth that was given to them. No other people group had that information. No other people group knew God that way. No other people group had Christ come to them, the Messiah come to them, right? And yet they rejected God's provision for righteousness for them. Good? Good? Okay, so we'll move on to... So that, that's uh, the desire of Paul. Now we're going to start seeing the righteousness by the law, and that's in verses 3 through 5. So here he's going to distinguish between the righteousness of the law, by the law, and righteousness by faith. So verses 3 through 5 will be the legal righteousness. Um, so it's continuing in Israel's fail, failure. So read verse 3 of chapter 10, if you would. Right, they, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They had a knowledge of God, but they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So what do they do? They established their own, right? They did not submit to God's righteousness. How many religions do that today? Really all of them, except for biblical Christianity, right? They, they want a form of, of righteousness. They are seeking a form of righteousness. But what do they do? They establish their own, and they don't submit to God's righteousness, right? That's, that's the sadness of, the, and they'll be zealous about it, and they'll have interest, and they'll be all for it, um, and sincerity for it, but they fail to, to obtain God's righteousness because they did it on their own and not through Him. So, th But that's the point that Paul is making, that Israel did that. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. Um, they sought to... They sought to obtain it, earn it, get it on their own way, on their own means. They, so they established it through their various uh, additions and subtractions and multiplications of, of, of laws that were already there, right? Um, so they, by establishing another way, they automatically reject God's way, right? When you don't submit to God's way and figure out any other way, it will not work. It's a failure. And so Paul is describing that that's how Israel has failed because they were ignorant of getting righteousness by God's way and trying to do it their own way. So do we know the kind of righteousness that God was really after? Do we know, do we have an example where it was taught in the New Testament? That is a question. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember he talked about that? Yeah. Sermon on the Mount, I think it's Matthew 5. Because um, what did he do, if you recall? He rebuked, right, the Pharisaical interpretation. He said to the crowd, you've heard this, but I tell you this. Yeah, you've heard it said this way, or you've heard it taught this way. But God says it's this way, right? God says it's that way. And so... It is written. And so... He rebukes the Pharisaical inter reinterpretation of Scripture, and then he correctly teaches it to them, right? And that's and the people understood it. Right after that, the people said, "Who is this man that he can we can understand what he's saying?" Basically, right? Because <clears throat> that's one of the ways we know that he taught plainly to people. Remember, in chapter thirteen, chapter twelve, they re he, they reject. He's he starts teaching in parables, right? And the, and the apostles are like, well, or the disciples are like, well, why are you teaching in parables now? 
right? Because before, everybody understood him. When he would speak, everybody understood. The crowd would understand. So when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was rebutting the Pharisaical interpretation of Scripture and reteaching it according to God's righteousness. And then when they rejected him as a nation, he started teaching in parables where the people wouldn't understand anymore, right? So the, so the Sermon on the Mount is the interpretation of Scripture that will explain what righteousness is. And remember the law, we, we've been talking about this, the law can't save you, but the law does what? What, has we, how, what have we learned so far that the law, the purpose of the law is? To condemn you? To yeah, to reveal your sin, right? To show you that you're a sinner. So is the law bad? It's great. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good because it allows you an opportunity to say, oh my gosh, I need help. I can't do this. I'm not righteous. Without knowing you're unrighteous, do you need a savior? Do you need help to become righteous? No. So the law is very good in that it's there to expose your sin, but it's also there. It also does what? It arouses you to sin, right? It makes you want to sin more because your sin nature is there. And so, so remember that's so when when Christ is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you call your call somebody a fool. It's like committing murder, right? You look on a woman with lust, it's like committing adultery. You know, so that's the perfect righteousness. And even in a certain amount, you're like, there's no way I can do that. I've looked, I've called somebody a fool, right? In, and far worse, right, in my own mind. And so I know that, that I can't obtain righteousness, but it reveals to me my sin. Therefore, my sin revealed to me, want, it, now I know I need a Savior, right? It's a very good thing. So that's the point that Christ is making on the Sermon on the Mount is that he revealed God's righteousness by teaching the correct interpretation of the law. The Pharisees were teaching, yes, you can obtain righteousness by doing these things. And he says, no, you can't, because just by looking at a woman or, or calling somebody a fool, you failed. That simple, right? You're done. It's over. You committed one sin, they're all broken, right? And so Christ rightly expressed what the law's purpose was for. And so that's why we know the law is good to reveal, but the law is powerless to save you. It only just tells you you need a savior, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, are we, we good there? Um, but the, that the Israelites assumed that they, that keeping the law as they inter interpreted it would save them, right? That's the whole purpose there. That's the whole understanding. They tried to attain righteousness by their own glory, by their own ways, by their own works, and they were even zealous for God. Remember, they killed Christ, and they thought they were doing God a service. Right? They thought they were doing right. They thought that God would be pleased with them because they got rid of somebody who said he was God, right? And that you can obtain righteousness by believing in him. They thought they were doing good. They were very zealous and very sincere. Yet they were very wrong, right? They were they had a zeal for God, but not a knowledge of God, right? Okay, so they refused to subject themselves to God's righteousness. They're still that way today, right? They still are in a state of disobedience, and the, the Jews are following their lead. Most Jews now in Israel are secular humanists. They're not actually like Orthodox Jews. They don't really believe in anything, right? Um, but they still are following their, their leaders in that way. Okay, so 
just like we were saying, this form of Judaism, Israel's own religion, is like every other religion where you try to obtain righteousness on your own merits, by your own works, by your own doing, right? And it's a disobedience, and it, it, it tries to teach external form of righteousness rather than circumcision of the heart, right? Rather internal, internal righteousness. But God's righteousness has always, always been by grace through faith alone, right? So, like I said, they, they were, Paul is saying that they were mentally prepared to reject the Messiah because they had been taught that they had to do it themselves and not that the Messiah would do it for them, right? And if we were to study Isaiah 53, we see that when he, right before he comes back, right before they call out, the nation will say those things. We thought we were doing good for God, but we learned that by his stripes, what? We were healed, right? He took the lashings. He took the beatings for us. We thought we were doing good for God, but we find out, no, he did all these things for us, right? Maranatha, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, right? All these things. So, um, okay. So, good? All right, verse 4. Let's read verse 4, 10, 4. Okay, so the pursuit of righteousness on the basis of law will fail. It's wrong. It won't do it, right? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? He brought an end to the law. The goal of the law was Christ. The law was not an end in itself, like we talked about. It was intended to bring you to faith in Christ. He was the goal of the law. It was to bring one to faith. And that's in several other passages. Galatians talks about that. Um, we talked about it already in Romans 7, Hebrews 7, 2 Corinthians. So there's, there's, that's a, a major theme, right? The death of Christ brought the law to an end. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the unrighteousness of, of mankind. And he, he fulfilled the law perfectly. So Christ never called somebody a fool in his heart. He never looked on a woman with adultery. He never did those things which allowed him to be perfectly right, like confirmed righteousness. And so that confirmed righteousness... Good morning. <laughs> you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> so the death of Christ brought the law to an end. But that's what they, the Israelites failed to understand, right? That the goal of the law was faith in Christ and that the law had ended as a rule of life. Um, they thought that the law, following the law, would give them salvation, but it ended, right? The law was never a means of salvation, but it was just a way to live your life for those who are already saved. Um, it was rendered inoperative. Remember we talked about how a law is only... Um, um, what do I say, holds authority over you while you're alive. We talked about the law of the husband and the law of marriage and how while they're married um, and he's alive, she is subjected to him. She can't divorce him, otherwise she'd become uh, considered an adulteress. But when he dies, that authority is done. That law no longer exists and she's free to marry again, right? 
it's the same, the same idea that the law has been ended, right? The law no longer has the authority over you at all. And so all it is is a rule of life. Like we still should not look upon a woman. We still should not call men, uh, other people, fools. I mean, we should, still should do these things. Not that we get to now, like Paul asked the question, what, should we sin more, right? Do we get to right. sin more? No, we shouldn't do that. We want, uh, we want righteousness. It's still that the law still describes God's righteousness, Right? It still does. And even to us, it exposes that we are sinners in unrighteousness. We still should try to follow the righteousness of God, which is loving one another. Right? It can be summed up in all those things. Love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and love others as yourself. That's basically what the law is. And so that's what we really need to do. So Christ annulled that law, rendered it inoperative, but he brought a new law. Remember, we talked about that new law, the law of Christ, um, and that's now the rule of life. And we talked about that, Matt, with Philippians 4, right? Whatever is pure, holy, righteous, noble, good, dwell on these things, right? It's, it's a, literally a commandment to do those things because those are the things that are going to guard your heart and mind and give you the peace that surpasses understanding is by doing these things, right? Okay, verse 5. So here's proof that um, it's always been by faith. And Moses gives us that proof. So read verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, so here Paul is quoting Leviticus 18.5, talking about Moses writing about the righteousness that is based on the law. So Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and mine ordinances, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am Jehovah. So this contrast of, verse, of Romans 10.5 is not between law and faith, but between righteousness coming from the law and righteousness coming from faith. Um, we know that no one can get righteousness from the law because we fail to keep it perfectly, right? The only way that we can attain righteousness or be justified and declared righteous is if we continue on the basis of faith, right? So following the law, you live in the law by faith, that it is working, that, it is, that God is accepting it, that, it is, that God is working. When they were under the law, that God, they'd still have to operate under faith, that God would still be pleased with their work, per se, but they believed by faith that he would believe that he would accept it are we are we understanding that the difference is that legal righteousness says i don't need god i'm already doing these things right because i'm doing these things i'm i'm righteous the alternate is i still need god even though i'm doing these things right do you see kind of the difference there that it's an attitude of faith that god is accepting it the other one says i don't need it because i'm already doing it. i'm already good i don't need you but the one says, no, I, need, I, I do these things because I need you, right? Because I, I want to be righteous with you. I want to live in them because he, he ordered me to do it. He commanded me to do it. I'm one of his chosen people, so I, I do it, right? But I still have to live by faith that he is accepting it and that it's still working and it's still doing its job in me, right? Um, 
But legal righteousness is trying to get righteousness by the works of the law. It fails to see that salvation can only be given by grace through faith, right? And they were look, they, like I said before, they should be looking forward to the fact that in the future there's going to be one sacrifice for the sins. In the law, they were atoning for sins every year and regularly all the time, right? So they, they even understood that even though they had an atonement or had a sacrifice or had an offering or whatever it is that they did, they would have to do it again. So it was never good enough, right? It always had to come back again. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the righteousness by legal means. Now he's going to touch on the righteousness by faith, which is 6 through 11. Um, so let's read um, verses 6 and 7. This is righteousness by faith, covering 6 through 11. Okay, go ahead and read verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith do not say in their heart who will ascend to heaven. That is, to bring up Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, so this is an interesting, interesting section. This is a quote that Paul is using from Deuteronomy 30. Uh, 12 through 13. So 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 10 says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, 12 and 13, which I'll read now, and says, it is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it, Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So it starts out, It is not in heaven. Any idea what it is? He's saying you don't have to go over there to get it. You don't have to go under here to get it. Righteousness, right? Righteousness. It is, it is not in heaven, right? That based, But the righteousness based on faith of, of Romans 6 and 7, right? And then Deuteronomy quotes, it is not in heaven that you should say who will go to heaven to get it or who will descend into the abyss to get it, to bring Christ down. So Moses is explaining in the Deuteronomy passage the nearness of God's righteousness, right? You don't have to go to heaven or down in the abyss to find it. It's near to you, right? Righteousness by faith is not by doing this or going there. Right? It's not initiated by human merit. It's near. It's here. Remember we talked about how having that nearness, you can learn, Paul in Philippians talked about, I've learned to be content in all things. Why? How can you learn to be content in all things? Remember that? Testing your, testing your knowledge here today. <laughs> Philippians, Philippians 4. He knows that he can be content in all things because God's right here. God's at hand, right? The nearness of God is right here. So no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm in, God's at hand. The same concept is here in Deuteronomy. You don't have to go over there to get righteousness. You don't have to go down there to get righteousness. God is here, right? That's what Paul is, is saying here is that um, don't say in your heart, will ascend to heaven, bring Christ down to the abyss, bring Christ up, right? Um, it's here. Okay, so now read read verse 8. We're going to continue on this. Read verse 8. 
But what does it say? <clears throat> the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so we see that. But what does it say? So Paul's re referring back to what Moses taught in Deuteronomy. That the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, right? The word of faith that we proclaim. So Deuteronomy 30, 14 is the means of this faith-based righteousness. And Deuteronomy 30, 14 says, But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it, right? You can have faith in God's provision for righteousness by following the law. So they still followed the law, but they had to do it by faith, right? No man could do it, but when Christ came, he did it, therefore he ended it. Are we, get, are we following that? So the law wasn't, wasn't just, ah, that doesn't work, let's kick it to the side, right? It was a purpose. It had a plan. It did wonderful things still for us, right? We, we do well to understand God's righteousness because that's how we compare ourselves. Sin is what? Missing the mark, right? Missing the mark of what? The mark of God's perfect righteousness. Anything outside of God's perfect righteousness is a sin. You, me, we are sinners. We need a savior. The law tells us how much we, outside of the bullseye, we really are. And we're so far outside of the bullseye, there's no hope for us, right? Okay. So what exactly is in the heart and in the mouth of those who believe is what? The word of faith, right? So Paul, other apostles were preaching that righteousness comes by faith. Even Moses was teaching that righteousness comes by faith. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart, right? Um, so the fact that it's in your heart and in your mouth shows that it's here. It's near. It's not over there, up there. And it's not down there. It's here. You have it. You can be content. You can live by faith. You can do it. <laughs> you can do it. It's there. You can do it. Right? So faith is always available. It's not having to achieve some grand works, you know, thing. It's always available. It's here. It's right here. You can do it. Okay, he goes more into this. Read verses 9 and 10, if you would. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right, so we see the connection, Deuteronomy 30, 14, but the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Now he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, for the for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is near. You don't have to go anywhere. It is here. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to go to a Billy Graham crusade. You don't have to do any of those things. It is here. You can have it. You can do it, right? So these two verses actually describe exactly how someone is saved, right? That's it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead, what? You will be saved. <laughs> That's it. Those things. Um, there's one essential element to salvation. It's belief, right? Faith. Because belief naturally leads into what? You confessing with your mouth. It naturally will go into that, right? Um, we'll get into that. We better stop. Can I just ask a question? Please, yes. I think I really struggle with. And I think perhaps it's from my 
um, Catholic upbringing, or I went to actually, I went to boarding school at nine years old. And I'd go to confession, and sometimes I only had to do like, let's say, three Hail Marys. Mm -hmm. And then the next week, I don't know that I did anything so awful, but I'd have to do the whole rosary. And so I saw, I learned that sin, there were different sins. There were Qualities of sins? Yeah, like the little white lie, uh -huh. it's still a sin. But then this one is a bigger sin, and like, as a nine-year-old living with 30 other girls, like, what was so awful that I could be doing? Yeah. And I just found myself being raised in a religion that was based on so much fear. Yeah. Fear that if I died without confessing every sin, I would be in hell for eternity. And I left the Catholic Church as an old teenager, but it's so ingrained in me that it's a difficult thing for me to understand that all is all sin then all sin is equal like if I like I'm working really hard on trying not to be judgmental because I find myself to be a judgmental person when someone does something that I think is wrong I look at them differently but I'm catching myself and I ask God to forgive me but I didn't go out and murder somebody. And I'm looking at that person thinking, I'm not anywhere near that kind of a sin. I, 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 can, I don't understand, I really struggle with this. Oh, I think we, we all do. I don't understand we all, we all do, but who, who should we compare ourselves to? Should we compare ourselves to each other? Like, oh, I'm better than such and such. Like I said, said before, well, my neighbor doesn't cut his grass, so he's a loser, you know, <laughs> or whatever, right? And so I, do, do I compare myself to other sinners? And even, even Pastor talked about it a few weeks ago. If you're drowning in sin, does it matter if it's 500 feet of sin or 50 feet of sin? You're still drowning, right? The quality or the quantity of sins is irrelevant for you. But we're not to compare ourselves to one another. If we were, I assume, if we were to walk out in town to unbelievers and we compared ourselves to unbelievers, we generally would be better, right? Gooder people than they would. But it makes no difference because we don't compare ourselves to them. We compare ourselves to him. Who judges you? God judges you and God judges them. So the the quantity or quality of sin is irrelevant when you compare to him you're you're already drowning or you're already drowned right and he reaches down and breathes life into you so i think the the, uh, the appropriate attitude to have is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god right the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life right and so you've been given a gift i've been given a gift and so the the, the like i said the you know, the, the number of Hail Marys. If Hail Marys could do anything for you, how ridiculous, we're stupid people if we believe that doing this or whatever the things are, are it's a silly, and I don't mean to, you know, offend you in that way. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that, but that, that's a works-based system, right? In the sense that you think, oh, I, I can, like we talked about before, well, I might as well just go on sinning right because i've got all this free grace given to me i might as well keep on sinning uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission so let me just go do whatever let me do 10 i'll do 10 hail marys all day long if i can go do this thing or whatever right and so 
the, the, the appropriate mindset is seeing yourself in light of God, not compared to the next roach next to you. You know, you're a roach, they're a roach, he's a roach, we're all a roach, right? And so we, 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 we look at the light, right? So does that, does that answer something, something of it? Yes, it does, because it, I see where it's all, it seems so simple, and yet it's so difficult. We've been Christians less than three years, and it's been very rewarding, extremely rewarding, and yet, like, I never thought of myself as a sinner. I thought, we're good people, we do good things, but then when I am learning the Bible, we're very new to this. A lot of it is very overwhelming because there's so much in it, but it, yet it's so simple if you just because when, when I talk to other people that don't believe, they ask me why. I said, I don't really, I can't tell you why, I just do. It's just in here. I just feel it. I, I don't know how to explain it to you, but for me, when we were baptized, it was one of the most beautiful days of my life. Yeah. And I will never forget that moment. Right. But can I explain that to a non-believer? No. Well, maybe, maybe you're as you're going through the Book of Romans, you're beginning to understand the 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 logic, the reason, the ration that the feelings have come from, right? You you felt an experience, but that experience is a result of an actual thing that occurred, a physical thing that occurred. You you've been saved, you've been justified, right? You are now right, declared righteous. So an actual thing happened to you. The baptism was an was not was not the thing that happened to you. The baptism was a result of what had already happened to you. So the experience you can describe now by understanding scripture of why the baptism matters is because I've been justified. I've been saved, right? I've been born again. And that that it's and the way I got born again is by faith in Christ alone, right? And so the baptism experience means something only because the content, the subject of, of your salvation was Christ. Right? Tremendous amount of work was done for you, for, for me. Work is done. It isn't that no works aren't done. It's just that you can't do any works that matter. Works don't mean anything to God because it's full of unrighteousness. The only work that matters to God is the righteousness of His Son. Because tremendous amount of work was done for you. It's just that you can't do the work. So all you do is have faith that work was done on your behalf and you didn't earn it. All you do is say thank you for grace. And all I do is believe that you gave me grace. That's it. And then, then what have we been learning? And then he takes over. And he sanctifies you day by day, moment by moment. And then he's going to glorify you, right? What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. It's absolutely, we should all tear and cry and, and uh, goosebumps up all the time. You know, have that, that part to us. So... Very good. Oh my gosh, we are late. Okay, let me pray. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this time. We love you. We worship you. Please, Lord, please continue to, to give us a hunger and thirst to know you, to know your word, to know your truth, to know your righteousness. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.